Saints in the Lord, would you turn to um, Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. As you turn there today, I have to tell you that this message is, is an extremely challenging message. It was challenging for me to prepare. It's challenging for me right now to deliver it. But the timing is right, I believe, and, and God called me to do this, and so uh, that, that's all that needs to be said, you know, as far as I'm concerned, is the Lord called me to preach this. Timing is right. Also, uh, I'm, I'm aware that many of you that are reading in your Bible, and you have a Bible reading plan, some of you are doing just as I do. You start in the book of Genesis, and you work your way all the way to Revelation. That's your Bible reading plan. And I think it's really helpful if you have an idea of what God's plan is for redemptive history, how he's working from Genesis all the way through Revelation in redeeming all humankind, to see the narrative, to see the story. Also, uh, in the adult Sunday school class, uh, you guys are in the book of Revelation, and in some ways you are doing the same thing that I'm preaching on here today. You're looking at uh, the life of the church, the the life of uh, humanity in light of uh, what uh, is going on with Satan, with the church, and with Jesus Christ in the heart of it. Furthermore, next week we begin uh, Samuel, uh, chapter 1, or I mean uh, 1 Samuel, and we will be looking at specifically David, King David, the forerunner of the great king, Jesus Christ, and that fits in with this message as well. Finally, what tipped the scales where I really felt that God was having me uh, preach this was because of Hamas, the Palestinians, the Middle East, and Israel. Uh, how does the church relate? I'm going to be preaching this message here uh, by making some observations and, uh, and then some questions. But let's now turn to Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Now when they, meaning the wise men or the magi, had departed... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. I have a reading for us. It's from the epistles, the letter written to the church of Galatia, the Galatians, which was a district. It's found in chapter 6, verse 16 through 18, just three verses. Actually, I'm going to start in verse number 14 through 16. Chapter 6, 14 through 16. The Apostle Paul pens these words. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. As for all who walk by this rule, 
peace and mercy be upon them and or even upon the Israel of God. So far, this is the reading from God's holy word. Brothers and sisters, the title of this message is The Israel of God. As I begin this message, I want to give you a little template or a layout. I'm going to start with some observations. Then I'm going to ask a series of questions. Then I'm going to make some Christmas observations, followed by a few more questions. And then the table is set. In 480 BC, roughly, a king, a mighty king, Ahasuerus, possibly his name was Xerxes, he ruled over the mighty expansive Persian Empire. It covered most of that known civilized world in those days. In those days, at the prompting of wicked Haman, letters were sent out, sealed with the king's signet ring that uh, would be sent to all the kings of this province, of, of the provinces, with the instructions to destroy, to kill, and annihilate all the Jews, all of them, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the entire realm of Persia. In 1941, over a 10-month period of time, Nazi Germany killed 3 million Jews. In 10 months, 3 million by the time the killing was done in 1945, six million Jews during the Holocaust had been killed in death camps and in extermination camps and in concentration camps in Germany and in Poland. In 1939, there were 17 million Jews roughly in the world. By 1945, that 17 million was down to 11 million could you imagine what would have happened if Hitler and Germany were successful in taking over all the countries in Europe, successful in taking over England? What if they were successful in going to Russia? They attempted to. What, have they, what if they had taken over Russia, where there were a lot of Jews? Today, there are 16 million Jews in the world. It still hasn't completely the total hasn't got back to where it was at its peak in 1939. Radical Islam, so many factions of radical Islam, seem to be so irrational with their mandates and their bylaws to destroy Israel. And then there's the church. The Apostle Paul at one time was Saul when the church was in its infancy. A little fledgling little thing, Saul Zealous Saul sought to destroy the church. In 300 AD, Diocletian, one of the Roman emperors, powerful man, had an empire-wide persecution taking place with a decree to destroy Christianity in the realm. Going forward a little bit further, in the 1950s, the late 1950s, communist countries were proliferating over the earth. Russia was the most powerful, came Soviet Union. The Soviet Union, led by Nikita Khrushchev, in the late 1950s, Nikita Khrushchev said this, he boasted that the religion in the USSR would become obsolete by 1965. And when that happened, he, hyperbole, you know, he uh, uh, hy with hyperbole, said that at least one Christian should be preserved and placed in a museum so that the future generations of the Soviets could view an extinct species. Why throughout history have people hated Israel, hated the Jews? Why throughout history have they faced the threat of genocide, of extermination? Why did the Jews and the Romans seek to kill Jesus, the King of Israel, the King of the Jews, the author of life, why throughout the history of the church, the true church, like Israel, has faced the threat of persecution, suppression, eradication, extermination? Israel, Jesus, the church, who or what is behind all of this? 
second set of observations that I want to make. I just read to you what is traditionally a Christmas narrative. All the narratives that we've looked at throughout this Christmas season have something in common. Listen, Gabriel speaks to Zechariah, speaks to him about John, who became known as John the Baptist. Gabriel said this to Zechariah, John's father. This, this boy, this man, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Gabriel speaks to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and here's what he said to her. God will give him, Jesus, the throne of his father, David. David was the, the king of Israel who ruled over Israel. And he will reign, Jesus will reign over the house of David as king forever. Notice, not just 1,000 years over Israel, forever. And notice also that this isn't an Old Testament passage coming from the Psalms or something that you would see in the Old Testament. This is a New Testament declaration that Jesus will reign over the house of David forever. Zechariah, the father of John, prophesied, and when you read it, it's all about Israel. The one that's going to rescue Israel, it's all about Israel. The father of Israel, also Abraham, Father Abraham. Mary's song, the great Magnificat, it's all about God's servant Israel. It's about Jesus, the one also, but it's, a, it's, it's direct. The one to benefit from what Jesus is going to do is God's servant Israel. And she speaks of, again, Israel's father Abraham and about Abraham's, the father of Israel, Abraham's offspring forever. The wise men come and they are looking to worship the king of the Jews. And we learn in that passage that a ruler is going to come who will shepherd my people, what? Israel. Israel, the Jews, Father Abraham. This raises some questions. Where do the nations come in? How do they fit in with this story about Israel? Where does the church come in? Beacon light. What is the church's relationship with Israel? How does the church respond to what is happening right now in the modern state of Israel? Israel, Jesus, and the church. They are inseparably united. But to begin to answer these questions, it requires a brief, I hope it seems that way to you this morning, overview of redemptive history. We're going to do that. We're going to look at salvation history briefly from Genesis to Revelation. And we're going to do so without losing sight of the texts that I just read to you this morning. I beseech you, as Paul would say, this is how he would say it, I beseech you that you listen carefully this morning. Take notes if you can. The title again of this message is The Israel of God. God is love, God is good. Everything that God made was good. We don't exist in a Star Wars cosmic economy. Star Wars and, and movies and shows and perspectives and philosophies like that feel that good and evil have always existed. It's called dualism. No, they have not always existed. There was a time when everything was good that God made, including Satan. But Satan was filled with pride and he fell. And then he tempted human beings that were made in God's image to fall as well with pride he tempted them to bypass God as they would rule and steward God's creation. To bypass God in their pride. God, though, is a loving God, merciful God. And the gospel was proclaimed long ago. Chapter 3 of Genesis 3.15. And here is what God said to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, this offspring that's coming of the woman, he will crush your head. Some translations say that, crush 
his head, Satan's, and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. The gospel is already being preached. Satan did his job well, though. There was a time then when all humanity, the thoughts of humanity were not the thoughts of God. The ways of humanity were not the ways of God. And every inclination of their heart was evil all the time. Satan had done a thorough job. God was grieved that he had made man in his image. He determined he would destroy everything that breathed on the earth, and he sent a flood, but he rescued a man of righteousness. He found a man of righteousness. Noah, together with his family, a family of eight, rescued them through the flood. In time, this little ragtag little group grew to become nations. Genesis 10 says that there were nations that were formed, and they began to spread over the earth. How many nations were there? Seventy. Seventy nations. Genesis 11. Satan is not done. There was a mighty man named Nimrod, a great warrior. He saw the spreading of the nations that were starting to spread over the whole earth, and he came up with a plan, and it was to build a great city with a tower that rose up to heaven, rise up to heaven, and the nations would be gathered together in the construction of this city. Once again, it was a a human unification project that bypassed God. God looked down, it says in Scripture, and he saw what was going on, and in effect he said, not gonna happen. Not that way. That's not how unity is going to work in my kingdom, bypassing God. The Bible says that words of God were, let us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let us confuse their language. And they did. They scattered them, all these nations, the 70 nations over the face of the earth with confused language. Genesis 12 God has a unity plan. God's way is going to be done his way. The kingdom way is going to be God's way. God begins to unveil his plan to bless and to unite all the nations into one people, one family, and he's going to do so through a people that he will choose. He will choose them. They're going to be a chosen people, and he does it this way. He calls a man, an obedient man, a believing man who has faith in God. He trusts and obeys God. He's a friend of God. His name is Abraham. God speaks to this faithful man who becomes God's friend. In your offspring, Abraham, in your seed, all nations are going to be blessed. Genesis chapter 22. In your seed, all nations are going to be blessed. And you will inherit this land, this land of Canaan. God seals this promise by having Abraham be circumcised. Abraham has a son. Abraham and Sarah have a son. His name is Isaac. He's a child of promise, born to Abraham in his old age. It's uh, Abraham's only son whom he loves. And to this son, Isaac, the son of Abraham, God says this. He speaks to Isaac himself, and here's what he does. He gives him a promise. In your offspring, in your seed, all the nations on earth will be blessed. Why? Because Abraham, your father, obeyed my voice. Genesis 26. Isaac has a son. His name is Jacob. God speaks to this son, Jacob. I am the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. I want you to notice this because if you're like me, probably you've read through that many times and you might not have even took note of it, but did you notice that when God is talking to Jacob, the son of Isaac, he calls, I, he calls Jacob and he, and he says, Abraham, your father. Notice that. Abraham, your father, is who is he addressing. And this is what he says to Jacob. God says this to Jacob. 
In you and your offspring, all families on earth will be blessed. Genesis 28. Jacob then has 12 sons. He hadn't had any children yet. Genesis 35 then addresses Jacob, now that he's got these 12 sons. God changes Jacob's name, and he calls him Israel. Israel. That's Jacob's name now. Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. When we think of Israel, the person, you can't separate it from his sons. Israel is known as a people group who is made up of 12 tribes. Israel has 12 tribes with Abraham as their father, the father of Israel. And then the promise stops there. No more does God speak this promise. In your seed, all nations will be blessed, including this promise to the land, about the land. God's plan for the rescue, the redemption, the blessing of all nations on earth will happen through this chosen people, Israel. And in the offspring of the chosen people's father, Abraham, pointing ahead to Jesus. Now they're in the land of Canaan, this little group. A severe famine hits them. Will the little family perish? Will this little family of Israel perish? No. God raises up Joseph, one of the 12 sons, becomes the second most powerful person in Egypt, provides food. The little family is saved. Israel, with his 12 sons, goes into Egypt to get food. And what it says there is that the 12 sons, together with their whole family, comprised 70. We won't have the time to unpack 12 and 70. If you don't forget, 70 nations. Don't forget that combination, 12 and 70. We can't unpack it. Lord willing, we'll have a time later on, maybe in a Sunday school class. They go to Egypt. 70. 70. This little teeny group, little family. And for 400 years, the Hebrews are there. Israel is there. And they grow into a nation. But they face harsh persecution, slavery, bondage. They're captive. Israel cannot move forward to accomplish what God had in mind for Israel. Furthermore, Pharaoh is wanting to kill all the male babies within Egypt. God raises up Moses. And through Moses... He is ready to liberate the people of Israel. God calls them out. And this is what happened. Moses had to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh this. Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. Well, that's quite a strange way to put it. A group of people, now they're two million. Israel is my son, this massive group of people, and he calls them by a singular individual, a son. Out of Egypt, the passage that we read this morning said, I called my son. Matthew, in writing the gospel, draws our attention to these words that Hosea, the prophet, spoke long ago. When Hosea said those words, out of Egypt, I called my son, you can read the passage. He had in mind the people of Israel coming out of Egypt. But it looks like that Hosea unwittingly was also prophesying about someone who would stand for Israel, a man whose name was Jesus, God's son. Israel is God's son as a collective people group. But there's an individual who is God's son. And he calls that one out of Egypt, as you'll see in a moment. God, in his holy word, says this about the people of Israel who have become a nation. They are a peculiar people, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the people of God, a treasured possession, a light to the nations. That's what Israel is. 
They're liberated from Egypt. They go to Mount Sinai. And there the law is given. Why? There is sin in Israel. Israel has sin in themselves. And they have to have that sin dealt with if they are going to accomplish what God would have them accomplish. Also, the law given to Israel accomplishes this. It keeps the people of Israel as a holy people, a separate people, who are separated from the nations. The law gives Israel strict ordinances which, which prohibit them from having any me- meaningful contact with the nations. They can't enter their dwellings. The nations cannot come into the temple to worship with God's people. There is no meaningful contact with the nations. There is a barrier between Israel and the nations. A barrier of hostility is what the Bible calls it. Israel is captive. It's held captive. It is in slavery to its own sin, can't be the light, and it's imprisoned. It's captive. Israel is captive under the law, can have no contact, meaningful contact with the nations. Israel cannot move forward to be a blessing to the nations, to unite the nations. So how is God going to rescue Israel, rescue them from their sin, so that, like in the Day of Atonement, sin is just simply covered, but how is the sin of Israel going to be removed, completely taken away? How is Israel going to be set free from the law of Moses to fulfill God's plan to be a light to all the nations? to unite the nations, to bless all the nations. The barrier is there. How? We sang it this morning. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Out of Egypt, this is the answer, out of Egypt I called my son. God calls Jesus, Emmanuel, God's son, out of Egypt. He calls his son to rescue Israel which is in exile, spiritual exile. How does he do so? Remember that Israel, corporately, is called by God his firstborn son. But also remember that Jesus is God's only son. Jesus, as Israel's representative, he can stand for all of Israel. Jesus, as a person, can represent the entire people group of Israel so that what happens to God's son Jesus as Israel's Messiah, the anointed one, stands for what happens to all of Israel, to those who put their faith in him. Out of Egypt, Jesus, Israel's representative, has come to set Israel free from their spiritual exile, from their bondage, captivity to sin and on their behalf at the cross the king of Israel the king of the Jews takes away their sin he takes away Israel's sin and their reproach on Israel's behalf Jesus perfectly fulfills all the law all of it and then at the cross he dies and with his death the law with its righteous requirements is abolished it's done away with Jesus was raised on the third day for our righteousness. He was raised for our righteousness. Israel now is no longer captive and imprisoned under law. They are now through faith in their Messiah for whoever does believe in Jesus. Any of the Israelites who believe in their Messiah, Christ. By the way, Christ, when we say Jesus the Christ, Christ is simply the Greek way of saying Jesus the Messiah. Messiah is Hebrew. Christ is Greek. Anyone who is, they are now through faith in their Messiah Christ made righteous with God. Through faith in Christ, they're made righteous with God. They're reconciled to God, they're made holy, and they're set free to fulfill God's plan and purpose for them, to reach the nations. And at the cross, something else happens. The barrier of hostility, the law, which Jesus destroyed and he brought down, that barrier that existed between Israel and the nations is gone. It's abolished. It's brought down. The barrier between, the is, between Israel and the nations is gone. Israel can now move forward with Jesus Christ, their Savior, as their head. But now we need to address the nations. We've got to get the nations right. 
Jesus, Israel's representative, coming out of Egypt, he delivers not only ethnic Israel from its bondage to sin, they're in exile, but he's come to rescue all the nations and to incorporate them into the people of God, Israel, the true Israel. The Messiah Jesus, Christ Jesus, is not just a propitiation for the sins of ethnic Israel and the Jews. He is a propitiation. What do I mean by propitiation? What does the Bible mean by propitiation? He not only takes away sin, but he takes away God's wrath, the wrath that comes upon sin. Jesus is taking away our sin and the wrath of God. And he does so not just for the Jews and Israel, ethnic Israel, but he does it for the whole world, for all the nations. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man. He, as one person, once again, you see this where one person can represent an entire huge people group. Jesus, as one man, can represent all of humanity, all of mankind, so that what happens to him, one person, stands for all humanity. On the tree... The cross, on the tree, Jesus bore our sins, and in his body, he took the sins away. And he took God's wrath away. He tastes death for all of humanity. But all that he did for all of humanity is only appropriated. It's only realized. It's only accomplished for every person who puts their faith in Jesus. What Jesus accomplished for everyone is only applicable, it's only effective for those who put their faith in Jesus, who enter into life in Christ Jesus. They're the ones that are set free from captivity to sin. Their sins are forgiven, they're reconciled to God, they're made righteous through their faith in Christ, and shockingly, these nations... These Gentiles who put their faith in Christ now find themselves in Christ. And they find themselves taking their place among the people of God. The scattered, divided nations who once were not a people without hope and without God joined the believers from Israel to become the people of God. They become, the nations become part of what's called the commonwealth of Israel. They become part of Israel. Sharers in all of the covenant promises that you see in the Old Testament that were given to the people of Israel. And if you want to question that, just read Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3 carefully. And you'll see it laid out there beautifully by the Apostle Paul. The wild branches that we are as nations, Gentiles, cut off wild olive trees, are grafted into the olive tree which is Israel, made up of the remnant of Israel. There is a remnant that has always been faithful to God, obeyed God, trusted God, would not bow the knee to Baal, who looked ahead to their Messiah. There has always been a remnant. This is the true Israel. The Gentiles, the nations, are grafted into that cultivated natural olive tree now. It's the Israel of God. What I have so painstakingly unfolded for you so far this morning represents the great divide between the Reformed tradition and what we call dispensationalism. I'm not going to unfold that. I have been teaching you and preaching as a pastor the Reformed understanding of Scripture and redemption, a redemptive history. Now, now that we're part of Israel, the Israel of God, here's what God says about us as Gentiles, as nations. Listen to this. This is intriguing. Here's what he says about us, you, me. Once you were not a people... But now you are the people of God. You are a people of God's own possession. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now wait a second, we say. That's what God said about Israel. Yes, he did. And that's just the point. And that's what he says about us now. 
Abraham, the father of Israel, has become your father and my father. Because he's the father of all who believe. And that's why the little children, whether they're in a dispensational church or a reformed church, sing that song. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Who's the all? Jews, Gentiles, Israel, true Israelites. Because Abraham is our father. You have become a Jew. That's what the Bible says. A Jew isn't somebody who is one outwardly. A Jew is somebody who is inwardly a Jew. And circumcision is not outward. It is inward. There is an inward circumcision. It's the circumcision of the heart. And you have the law of God written no longer on tablets of stone, but the law of God is inscribed by the Spirit upon your heart. The spirit of the living God is not dwelling in a temple, in a physical temple in Israel somewhere, in Jerusalem somewhere. The spirit of the living God now dwells in the temple of your body. And Jesus Christ is that massive temple of which you and I, through our faith in Christ, have become living stones in that massive temple who is Jesus We are being joined together with all who believe in Jesus Christ, Israel's Messiah, the Christ, to become a living stone built up together, unified, all nations, believing Israelites, into that temple. We're not looking for a temple to be built in Jerusalem for God to fulfill his redemptive plans for for history, for his people. We have come to Mount Zion. That's what the Bible says. To the heavenly Jerusalem. Your eternal home, my eternal home, is now the glorious, mighty, massive, beautiful city called New Jerusalem. That's our city. The great city of Israel, Jerusalem, the New Jerusalem. That's our city. And it has 12 gates in them. They're all named after the tribes of Israel. That's our city. Everyone has to enter in through one of those gates. And it's built upon the foundation stones of the 12 apostles who were all Jews. With Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. It's the city of the great king. And the great king is Jesus. King Jesus. The king of kings and the lord of lords. He's the descendant of King David. According to the flesh. And as it was foretold long ago. He's the one who will rule on David's throne and over the house of Jacob, over Israel, forever. The king of kings reigns over Israel on David's throne forever. There are five verses left in the Bible. This is Revelation chapter 22, verse number 16. There are only five verses left in the Bible, and here's what Jesus does by way of reminder, so that we don't forget at the end of the Bible... At the end of this book of Revelation, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify these things for the churches. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David. He is the bright and morning star. Church, we have to pay attention. Jesus has just declared himself. This is who he is forever. He's the root of David, the king of kings who's ruling over his empire, his kingdom, and over Israel. Brothers and sisters, what's happened here is that the two have become one. Believing Israel has been united to the believing nations because God only has one family. The Christmas story that we've been reading for the last five, six weeks about Israel is a story about us all. It's a story about us as well. And so the song that we sang this morning, we sung, O come desire of nations, bind all peoples in one heart and mind, bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease, fill the whole earth with heaven's peace, rejoice Rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to you 
O Israel. Saints in the Lord, the union of the believing Gentiles to the believing Jews to believing Israel is a shocking, radical development. It is so radical that it requires something entirely new to accomplish it. It requires new creation. Believing Jews become new creatures in Christ. When they enter into faith in Christ, they're in him, they become a new creature. Believing Gentiles, the nations, become new creatures in that same Christ, in Israel's Messiah, in the Christ. And Galatians 2.20 puts it this way. If anyone is in Christ, he becomes a new creature, a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And together they comprise a new entity. And that new entity is called the Israel of God. It's the New Testament church. Read Galatians 5, or 6.15 and 16. For neither circumcision, the Jews, circumcision, counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, the Gentiles, the pagans, the nations. What counts is a new creation. And for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, even upon the Israel of God. Because that is what the Israel of God is. It is made up of Jews and Gentiles who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and have become a new creation, and they together comprise a new entity, the Israel of God, the New Testament church. As I said, the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verses three, and chapter 2 and, verse, and chapter 3 say the same thing. The Jews, the Gentiles, are united into one new worshiping community. They're incorporated into Israel. And this mystery that has been hidden for ages is now made manifest. It's shown. This mystery has been shown to the cosmic rulers and the authorities. It's expressed. This union of believing Jews, believing Israelites, with the believing nations who come together in a worshiping community is expressed in the church. That's what it says. That's the holy word of God. The Israel of God. The church is not replacing Israel. The New, Chest the New Testament church is simply the fullness of all that God had planned and purposed for Israel from the very beginning. The New Testament church had its birth in Jerusalem, in Israel, on the day of Pentecost. I'm talking about the New Testament church. In a sense, there has always been a church, an assembly of God's people. From the very beginning, all those who have been faithful to God have been part of an assembly of God, the people of God. But the New Testament church, the union of Jews and, and Gentiles, which couldn't happen because of the law, now has happened. It's taken place, and they take their place with all those who have gone before them, and they are assembled into one body, the New Testament church. Jews and sojourners and foreigners on the day of Pentecost, long ago, 50 days after Passover, 50 days after Jesus Christ died, roughly, the day of Pentecost came. And all these people from all the nations of the earth, all the nations of the earth gathered together in Jerusalem in Israel. And there the Holy Spirit came upon them, upon the 120. And the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom was being preached to all these nations that are assembled. The whole earth is assembled, representatives. And they're hearing the good news in, in a language that all of them could understand. They're together, they're united, and they're believing. This is a reversal of what Satan was attempting through Nimrod. The gathering of all the nations bypassing God and ruling in their own authority. But no, God's plan all along was, I'm going to call my representative. I'm going to choose my people. And they are going to be reconciled to me. And through them, through their representative, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, I will gather all the nations into one family, my family, who will obey me. And love me 
and I will love them. Isaiah saw it coming. Isaiah, the great prophet, 700 years before Jesus was born, he told Israel this, Israel, the nations are coming. They're coming. They're coming to your light. Open the tent cords wide, Israel. You will possess the nations. You will possess the gates of your enemies. Do you see the gates of their enemies as well? Not only are the nations coming to Israel and hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ in the kingdom and being united, but those very same nations are going to go back out to where they came from. And they're going to bring the gospel with them. When it says, when Isaiah said, you, Israel, will possess the gates of your enemies, it's not like the gates of their enemies are coming to Jerusalem. They're going to go out and they're, all these believers are going to go to their own nations. And in time, the 12 apostles will be going out as well. And the nations will believe and be drawn in and become part of the people of God, the Israel of God. I can't take time to unfold this. When we talk about what's going on in Israel right now, and we think about the land of Israel, Canaan, most of us see it from Jordan to the Mediterranean, God promised Abraham that he would inherit that land. And he made that same promise all the way to Isaiah, I mean to uh, um, Israel, Jacob, Israel, same thing. You're going to inherit that land. But in the same way that Israel was this small little group that's in that land, Israel now has spread out and now they're going to be all over the world because Israel is made up of every single person that believes in Israel's Messiah, Jesus, Christ. They're going to be part of the commonwealth of Israel all over the world. Similarly, the land. Without disregarding that land... We don't have to discard the promise to Abraham about the land. It's just that the land that Abraham was meant to inherit in the fullness was the entire world. And now you might be saying, Pastor, is that just your thinking? That Abraham, this promise to Abraham that he would inherit the land, Canaan, in its fullness though, was meant to inherit the entire world? No, it's found in Romans chapter 4. And there the Apostle Paul said this about Abraham, that he had been given a promise that he would inherit the whole world. The Israel of God is set free and commissioned to go and reach the nations with the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no plan B. It's not like there was a plan that God had, plan A, to do something with Israel, and they failed. And so God had to come up with another plan that bypassed Israel. No. Israel couldn't live up to all the requirements in their own strength, so God had to fulfill all the tenets of the covenant that he made with Israel, that in your seed all nations would be blessed. So God in his mercy did what Israel was helpless to do, but he continued to use Israel. There's no plan B. God did not fail. Satan tried. He always tries, but he cannot thwart God's plan to bless the nations and rescue the nations through that one family, Israel. God's covenant promises to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, Israel's Messiah. Satan hates God. He hates God's people. He hates Israel. He hates the Messiah Jesus, Israel's representative. And he hates all who belong to Jesus. He hates the church, the Israel of God, with Jesus Christ, the Messiah, at her head. But the gates of Hades will not prevail against her, against the church. The seed of Abraham, the seed of the woman, will crush Satan's head. The seed of Abraham will prevail. Jesus and the church will prevail. Satan, through his pawn, Herod, tried to kill the baby Jesus. The dragon, the ancient serpent, tried to devour Jesus. 
as a baby. But he couldn't kill the one who would rule the nations with a rod of iron. He failed. Satan failed. Thirty years later, Satan enters into Judas. Judas betrays the author of life. Israel's king, the savior of the world, goes to the cross. Satan failed. Three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead. Satan is in a rage. He knows that his time is short. He's waging war on his offspring, on the offspring of the woman, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. He seeks to destroy the church, the Jews and the nations who believe in Jesus. He seeks to destroy the Christians. He's a roaring lion seeking to devour, to steal, kill, and destroy. But the lion of Judah, Jesus, is stronger. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And he seeks to destroy Israel. Israel according to the flesh. The Apostle Paul calls it in Greek, kata sarka. There is an Israel. It's not the true Israel. It's the Israel according to the flesh. It is a reality that there is an Israel according to the flesh. You put that in contrast to true Israel. What do we mean? Kata Sarka, Israel according to the flesh, ethnic Israel, for the most part, is made up of Jews who do not believe in their Messiah. They're still in their natural ethnic state. They haven't become part of the true Israel, which is comprised of those who have put their faith in Israel's Messiah. So you have this ethnic Israel. And yet radical Islam wants to crush them and kill them anyway. And so did Nazi Germany. Why does Satan want to destroy them? You know, Paul grieved for his people, his natural-born people. Paul was an Israelite. He was a Benjamite. He was a natural-born Jew, a natural-born Israel. You know what? He grieved for those had Israel. He grieved for ethnic Israel, the natural-born Israel, who had not put their faith in Christ. In fact, Paul grieved so deeply, he said, I wish I could be cut off and cursed, cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people that don't believe. Ethnic Israel, katasarka, Israel according to the flesh. Why does Satan still want to kill them? Because for the fullness of God's plan to be realized, they must be brought in. Unbelieving Israel must be brought in. At the moment, <coughs> at the moment, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are your enemies. That's what it says in the Bible. Unbelieving Jews, unbelieving Israelites are your enemies according, as, as far as the gospel is, is concerned. But here's what the Bible says about unbelieving Jews. And unbelieving Israel, Israel according to the flesh, who has not become true Israel yet, fulfilled Israel. They are beloved of God. That's what the Apostle Paul said. They're your enemies, but they are beloved of God. And for the sake of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they will return. Why? Because the gifts of God and the calling of God are irrevocable. A major portion, a major portion of Israel is experiencing a hardening in part. Right now, the highest estimates worldwide of how many believing Jews there are is 350,000. Most estimates are much lower than that. Jews for Jesus has it probably more like at 150,000. There are 16 million Jews worldwide. Do you realize how few are Messianic Jews who have put their faith in their Messiah, Israel's Messiah? That's less than 2% by far of the 16 million Jews. Seven million of them are in Palestine, in that promised land. Six million of those 16 are in the USA. USA. 
They're experiencing a hardness in part, a hardening in their hearts in part, until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And those nations, the fullness of the nations, the Gentiles, includes China, by the way. It includes Iran. It includes Palestinians. It includes Syria, who come into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and enter into life in Israel's Messiah and so become part of the commonwealth of Israel, the true Israel. And the Israel according to the flesh, that which is not yet fulfilled Israel, true Israel, is jealous. That's what the Apostle Paul said. They're jealous. They're jealous of the nations. But they too will come to repentance. That's what Paul said. They will come to repentance with a godly sorrow that leads to life. They will turn by faith to their own Messiah someday, and they will grieve for the one that they have crucified. And they will rejoice in the mercy and the steadfast love of God, their covenant-keeping God. God is a covenant-keeping God. His covenant on behalf of Israel cannot be broken. Israel is an olive tree, a remnant. And even though most of the Jews have been broken off as branches from their own tree, and we as wild olive branches from other trees have been grafted into the true Israel, that doesn't mean that all those Jews that were cut off because of their unbelief are going to remain there. They're going to be jealous. They're going to repent. And they will be grafted back in to their own cultivated olive tree. They, the natural branches, with us, the wild olive branches, in the same tree. And the Bible puts it this way in Romans, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved. The Israel of God. God's covenant promise to Abraham and to Israel will be accomplished. Today, saints in the Lord, I asked you what was behind all of this, this destruction, destructive thoughts, and I said, Satan. Today, Satan is trying to wipe out the Jews, Israel. But we as Christians, we, we as Christians, remember a Jew, a Jew who 2,000 years ago laid his life down for all of humanity. We remember the, two, the 12 Jewish apostles, Israelites, who went out and in Jesus' name laid down their lives to reach us, the nations. Salvation is from the Jews. That's what Jesus said. But as for Israel, even unbelieving Israel, the Jews that haven't put their faith in the Messiah, theirs are the patriarchs. Theirs are the ancient fathers, Abraham. It was theirs. To them was given the law. The Ten Commandments. And from them, even the unbelieving Jews, has come the Savior of the world. And so, like Paul, we pray for Israel, for Katasarka, unbelieving Israel, Israel according to the flesh, unbelieving Jews. They are meant to be part of us. They are one family. We are one family, and we are waiting for our older brother to come home. We love them, Israel, in the nation. We love them and we pray for them. When we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we help them where we can. We rescue them. America helps them, rightly so. If from them we have reaped spiritual benefit, how can we not help them with physical things? And we share the gospel with them, even as they did their believers with us. In conclusion, how do I know all that this will come to pass? That God will be victorious. He will accomplish his original plans to bless the world through Abraham's offspring, the woman's offspring, and through Israel. How do I know that he will prevail, God will prevail, that true Israel will prevail, that Christ will prevail, that the church will prevail, not Satan, the Israel of God will prevail, because at the midpoint of human salvation history, at the bleakest hour when everything seemed to be lost, when even the sun refused to shine, our Savior Jesus was crucified. 
Something happened, though, on the third day. The tomb was empty. Jesus was raised from the dead, and the angel said to the women, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And all God's people said, <laughs>